Since the closing days of the Cold War, United States policymakers, pundits, international relations scholars, and policy analysts have argued that great power is a relic of a bygone age. In 1986, the historian John Lewis Gaddis termed the post-World War II era a long peace because the Soviet Union and the United States had not come to blows. Two years later, political scientist John suggested that changing norms had made great power conflict obsolete. By 2011, the psychologist Steven Pinker was arguing that the long peace had morphed into a new peace marked by a generalized decrease of violence in affairs. Of course, as evidenced by the ongoing conflict in Afghanistan, Libya, Sudan, Sudan, Syria, Ukraine, and Yemen, to name a few, there is currently no shortage of organized armed violence involving smaller countries. Still, given the blood-drenched course of politics since the start of the modern international system century, the absence of war on great powers since 1945 is striking. That does not mean that these kind of conflicts are off the table. In fact, despite attempts by academics and politicians to write off great power war as a real threat, the conditions that make it possible still exist. Tensions persist of today's great powers, above all, the United States and China. And any number of flashpoints could trigger a conflict. These two countries are on a collision course, fueled by the dynamics of power transit and their competition for status and prestige. And without a change in direction, war between them in the coming decades is not only possible, but actually probable. Even as geopolitical competition between the United States and China intensifies, most Americans who think seriously about foreign policy and grand strategy refuse to believe that war is likely. This optimism is primarily rooted in several prominent theories of state behavior. The first is that a high level of economic interdependence reduces the risk of violent conflict, but history proves many examples to counter this hypothesis. The countries of Europe were never more interdependent economically and culturally than they were before the outbreak of World War I. In the economies of the two great conflicts, Belgium, the United Kingdom, and Germany were closely, and even if the independence of the United States and China might theoretically reduce the risk of war between their economic ties, have begun to unravel in recent years, as each begins to decouple from the other's economy. Skepticism about the prospect of a great power war also stems from the faith in the strength of a deterrence. The risk of mutually assured destruction. Nuclear war was surely played a role in preventing the Cold War from turning hot. In recent decades, however, technological advances have weakened deterrent. The combination of miniaturized, low-yield nuclear warheads and highly accurate delivery systems has made thinkable what once was unthinkable, a limited need which, not, which would not result in apocalyptic destruction. Finally, other scholars have argued that the so-called liberal international order, U.S. leadership through multilateral institutions such as the United Nations, the World Trade Organization, and the International Monetary Fund, and the spread of principles of peaceful cooperation, now provide regularity and predictability internationally. Some, such as the political scientist John Eichen, optimistically forecast that this order can survive for many decades future, not with its rise, and the eventual end of U.S. predominance. This assumption, however, is problematic. The order is being challenged not by changing nationals, but also political development in the countries that have traditionally defended in the United States and the rise of popular and illiberal democracy is a backlash against the current and the elites who champion and profit from 
As domestic support for the order decreases and the balance of power shifts towards other countries, the system will eventually become less effective at mediating conflict. Rising powers may also see an opening to revise the structure entirely, raising the risks of war. Beyond theory, history also demonstrates that constraints on great power war are weaker than they often are. In particular, the course of the British-German rivalry that culminated in a war in 1914 shows how two great powers can be drawn inexorably towards a conflict that seemed highly unlikely right up until the moment it began, and the parallels to the contest between the United States and China today could hardly be. In the early years of the 20th century, Imperial Germany's fast-growing economic, technological, naval power began to pose a challenge to the existing British-led international order. Despite close ties between the British elites began to see Germany's growing economic power as a menace. Moreover, they resented Germany's economic success because it was the result of trade and industrial policy they deemed unfair. German prosperity, they felt, derived from state intervention rather than liberal, laissez-faire approach that had governed the United Kingdom's political British elites also harbored a deep antipathy towards Germany because they saw its political culture, which privileged the military and its values as fundamentally antithetical to liberal values. Simply put, they believed Germany was an irredeemably bad actor. It is no wonder that once war began, the British quickly came to understand the conflict as an ideological crusade pitting liberalism against Prussian autocracy and tourism. The British and Germans were competing for prestige as well as power. Germany's Weltpolitik strategy, building a big navy and seeking colonies, provoked the United Kingdom, which as a trading nation with a sprawling overseas empire could not ignore the emergence of a rival naval power just across the North Sea. In reality, however, Germany's battleship building program was driven less by economic or military considerations than by a hunger for status. Germany's goal was not necessarily to challenge the United Kingdom, but to be acknowledged as its great power equal. Despite these sources of conflict, the outbreak of war between the two states in August 1914 hardly was inevitable. As historians Zara Steiner and Nielsen point, there was no direct clash over territory, thrones, or borders. In fact, there were important factors that might have fostered peace. Trade, cultural bonds, and intercollected elites and royal families, in name of Margaret Macmillan's answer, the conflict was the result of the clash between a major power feeling its advantage slip away and a rising challenge. Such transitions are rarely managed peacefully. The established power is often too arrogant, lecturing the rest of the world about how to manage its affairs, and too often insensitive to the fears and concerns of lesser power. Such a power, as Britain was then and the United States is today, inevitably resists its own intimations of mortality, and the rising one is impatient to get its fair share of whatever is on offer, colonies, trade, resources, or the parallels between the pre-19th British-German antagonist contemporary U.S.-Chinese relations are striking and cautionary. The United States finds itself in place of the United Kingdom, an incumbent hegemon whose relative power is gradually waning. Washington, like London before it, resents its adversary's rise, which it attributes to unfair trade and economic policies and views its rival as a bad actor whose values are antithetical to liberal. For its part, Germany, prior to World War I, today's fast-rising China, wants to be acknowledged as an equal on the international stage and seeks hegemony in its own region. The United Kingdom's inability to adjust peacefully to Germany's rise helped lead to World War I and the United States follows the British precedent, and whether it follows or not will determine whether the U.S.-Chinese competition ends in war.
For Chinese leaders, their own country's history provides a cautionary tale about what happens to major countries that fail to make the jump to great power status. As scholars have noted, China's defeat by the British and the French in the two opium wars in the mid-19th century stemmed from its inability to adapt to the changes brought about by the Industrial Revolution. Because of a weak response on the part of Chinese leaders, stronger imperialist powers were able to dominate the affairs the Chinese refer to the subsequent era which Western powers in Japan kept China down as the century of humiliation. China's current rise is driven by a desire to avenge the humiliation it suffered and restore its pre-19th century status as East Asia's dominant power. Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening program was the first step in this process to spur its economic growth and modernization. China integrated into the US-led world order. As Deng himself put it, in 1992. Those who are backwards get beaten. Beijing's long-term goal was not simply to get rich. It aimed to become wealthy enough to acquire the military and technological capabilities needed to wrest regional hegemony in East Asia away from the United States. China joined the system, not to help preserve it, but to challenge it within. That strategy has succeeded. China is rapidly approaching the United States on every important measure of power, and already exceeds the United States in economic size in purchasing power parity. In 2014, the International Monetary Fund when, uh, announced that when measured in terms of PPP, China had passed the United States as the world's largest economy. Measured by market exchange rates, China's GDP is now nearly 70% of the United States. And as China can recover rapidly from the pandemic-induced economic downturn, it will likely pass the United States as the world's number one by any measure before the end of this decade. In military terms, the story is in 2015, a study by the RAND Corporation noted that the gap between the U.S. And, military and Chinese military power in East Asia was closing rapidly. The U.S. fleet and the U.S. bases in the region were now under threat from improved Chinese capability. The study's authors themselves expressed surprise at this shift. Even for many of the contributors to this report who tracked development Asian military situation on an ongoing basis, the speed of the change was striking. U.S. policymakers increasingly see a U.S.-Chinese rivalry not as a traditional great power competition, but as a struggle pitting democracy against communism. In July, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo delivered a speech whose main purpose was to cast U.S.-Chinese hostility in ideological terms. We have to keep in mind that the Communist Party is a Marxist-Leninist regime. General Secretary Xi Jinping is a true believer in a bankrupt totalitarian ideology, Pompeo stated. That informs his decades-long desire for global hegemony of Chinese communism. American America can no longer ignore the fundamental political and ideological difference between our countries. Just as the CCP has never ignored, such rhetoric aims to lay the groundwork for a more intense phase of U.S.-Chinese friction by echoing Cold War depictions of the Soviet Union as an evil empire, delegitimizing Chinese government and in the eyes of the American public in portraying China as a bad actor in the international political arena. It is not only hawks such as Pompeo who have come to view China through an ideological prism. A wide swath of establishment figures in Washington have come to believe that the real threat to the United States is not China's growing military and economic power, but Beijing's challenge to the U.S. model of political and economic development. As Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan wrote in these pages in 2019, China may ultimately present a stronger ideological challenge than the Soviet and its rise to superpower status will exert a pull toward autocracy.
This ideological turn in US-China policy is unwise. It creates a febrile move in Washington and makes more more likely. The United States would be better advised to take ideology out of the conduct its relationship with China as a traditional great power rivalry in which diplomacy aims to manage competition through compromise, conciliation, and a search for the common ground. Ideological contests, on the other hand, are a zero-sum game in nature. If your rival is evil, compromise, indeed negotiation, becomes a peak. This is approach that may be taken, but it is not going to be. The danger ahead. Today, the United States and China, their relationship is suffering. Economic relations are on the rocks. Due to the Trump administration's policy on trade and U.S. technology policy aims to put Chinese firms such as Huawei out of business, this will not change if the president changes. It's easy to see how any number of flashpoints could trigger a warming year. Events on the Korean Peninsula could draw the United States and China, and both countries' military maneuvers have raised tensions in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. Washington is also challenging long-established understandings about Taiwan's status by edging closer to recognizing the island's independence from China and openly acknowledging the United States' military commitment to defend Taiwan. The United States has also reacted strongly to Beijing's repression of China's Uyghur Muslim minority and to its imposition of a harsh new security law on Hong Kong. In both cases, a bipartisan array of U.S. officials have condemned China, and both Congress have imposed retaliatory sanctions. Despite the pushback, China is unlikely to abandon its goal of becoming a regional hegemon and attaining dominance in Asia. Its highest goal is to attain dominance in Asia. Whether that succeeds or not is an open question. But Beijing will continue pressing the United States to respect it as a great power equal. Avoiding war by accommodating China's desires would require the United States to abandon Taiwan and recognize Beijing's call to the island. Likely, China may ask the United States to abandon Japan, South Korea, Australia, and Vietnam. Washington would also need to accept China's view that liberal values are not universal and democracy is not a universal system. And Likewise, it would have to accept and tolerate China's treatment of the Uyghur population. There is little chance that the United States will take these steps and accept this situation. Doing so would mean acknowledging the end of the United States' primacy in the world. Unlike during the Cold War, when the United States and Soviet Union generally accepted each other's spheres of today, Washington and Beijing have starkly different views who should enjoy preeminence in East China and in the South China Sea in Taiwan.